Hello and welcome to the Commonweal Policy Podcast. I'm Craig DL, I'm the Head of Policy and Research at Commonweal. And this week marks a very special uh, moment in the, the Policy Podcast. This is our third anniversary. Um, I can't quite believe this has been going for three years now. Um, it's been quite a journey. But to mark this date, I am extremely delighted to welcome my, my guest for this week. It's writer, campaigner, activist and my former co-host on the Policy Podcast, Jonathan Shafi. Welcome, how are you? Oh, well, it feels like no time at all has passed since the last uh, podcast, um, though the world has obviously uh, gone completely mad in that time as well. Um, but yeah, no, three years is a serious milestone because the the discipline and organisation involved in maintaining a podcast over that period of time is is much to your credit. So um hope that uh, all the listeners are uh, enjoying it and also supporting it in any in any possible way through shares or donations as well. Well, thank you, and certainly I've been having a lot of fun trying to find guests and, and bring them onto the show to talk about um, various issues, and I'll, I'll talk about, about that at the end of the podcast, but if anyone out there would like to come on and share their stories, share their experiences, or shout about a project that they're getting up, getting up to, please get in touch, and we'd love to, love to talk to you. Now, I brought Jonathan on this week, um, not just because it's a, an anniversary date, but um, because he has started a, a blog recently examining critically the, the efforts being made by the Scottish government to bring about Scottish independence, or the lack thereof. One of his most recent posts on that blog considers various barriers that have been raised by the Scottish government that may act to hinder the independence movement. Um, so in our discussion this week, we're going to look at those barriers and we're going to look at how uh, either the Scottish government or the grassroots independence movement ourselves can overcome or bypass those, uh, those barriers. Now, the first one you talk about in the article is uh, the idea of electoral thresholds, this, this idea that we cannot have independence until there's some demonstration that there is a supermajority of support for independence. It's well known that in, in, in Scottish political history that the 1979 devolution referendum was, was directly thwarted by such an electoral threshold. There was a majority of people who voted in that referendum voted for devolution, but not, quote, enough of the total electorate voted in that referendum, voted for that result, for it to, for it to count under the rules. Infamously, this had the effect that if you registered to vote and then died before casting your vote, that was mathematically equivalent to voting against devolution. Now, more recently, the UK and Scottish governments have converged on the idea that before we get an independence referendum, first we need to get to reach some threshold in the, of support in national polling, often quoted at around 60%. Jonathan, where did that number come from? Why did the Scottish government start talking about that 60% threshold? So... I suppose the, the overall concept of <clears throat> excuse me the, the newsletter and independence captured is to look at various ways in which, particularly from a, a left-wing perspective, the, the, the concept of independence has been captured, either by corporate interests uh, in terms of the prospectus, uh, by the foreign policy establishment um, as well, but also in terms of the actual process around it, um, which, which is what we're talking about today. Now, lots of the provocations which I put um, in the newsletter um, are things where I disagree with the, the Scottish government. Others of them, I think, the, you know, there are arguments that can be made. In this particular example, we heard the, the idea of 60% um, being uh, 
consistently polled as being a, an option for a new mandate for the SNP or a new uh, energy behind independence. This came about in 2015. And in some ways, I think that's quite an understandable position because it's only a year after the independence referendum, of course. Um, but it's just interesting that uh, senior sources uh, back in 2015 revealed that there was two ways in which a, a renewed mandate might make itself uh, known. One is being removed against from the EU against uh, against Scotland's will. That happened. But the other one was consistent polling of 60% or over. Nicola Sturgeon actually said, and I'll just give this quick quote, to propose another referendum in the next parliament without strong evidence that a significant number of those who voted no have changed their minds would be wrong and we wouldn't do it. Well, they do have a mandate, of course, uh, and that was in part precipitated by uh, Scotland moving out of the EU against its will. Um, but at the same time, um, uh, we should say that polls are relatively 50-50 at the present moment. So potentially one of the conditions that would make the SNP leadership more comfortable about independence hasn't yet been met. Just quickly, Craig, it's also just worth saying that the Scottish Secretary, Alistair Jack, had um, previously conceded that 60% of uh, poll respondents arguing in favour of a referendum would have to be acknowledged. Um, and also, this is something which is uh, relatively under-discussed, though I think is important. There is actually a UK referendums bill making its way through the, uh, the UK institutions. It's in the House of Lords just now. Um, and that advocates uh, a kind of quorum of 60%. Um, I suppose to bind all of that together, we have to look at the experience of Brexit. Now, my view, my estimation, is that the SNP want to avoid even winning a referendum by a, a small margin, because it leads to a very volatile and potentially very divisive political situation. I think that goes against all of their political instincts. Uh, as we know, they're, they're famously cautious in that sense. So around the question of thresholds, I think there's quite a lot to think about. And hopefully that's a little bit of an overview of some of the issues it's raised. Yeah. And um, what do you think we as a movement can do to, to counteract that? To, to, to push it, either push against the argument or perhaps meet it on its own terms? I actually think that the most important thing to do is to, to raise support for independence. I think that makes... Uh, mandate stronger. I think it makes it more difficult for the SNP leadership to avoid uh, the question of a referendum. I think the best thing that you could do is to is to raise that figure up to, uh, you know, you don't have to put an exact figure on it, but but create substantial majorities on a consistent basis. Now, as we'll go on to to talk about, one of the great difficulties in the independence movement achieving this is the prospectus or the lack of one and the need uh, for us to have had one over the last number of years. Um, something you and I have talked about, I think even yeah. if you go back to podcast three years ago, we'd be talking about this. So I think that's been a rod up the back in the independence movement, actually achieving, uh, you know, moving that figure upwards. Mm. Now, just to, to, to talk about Brexit, because you, as you brought it up, how much of a precedent did the the Brexit referendum, the process around it, and the, the negotiations afterwards set in terms of changing the, the, the terms of an independence referendum. We've seen talk of a confirmatory vote after um, after independence negotiations, um, although that was something that notably did not happen 
uh, with with Brexit in the end, despite call, some calls for it. But we've also seen um, uh, for people advocating for changes of terms of the question in the referendum from one that is based on the binary choice between yes and no to one that's based on remain versus leave. So I think the Brexit precedent has opened up all sorts of problems around the question of independence. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it's created the space for this new mandate. Um, it has surely weakened the uh, the union politically. Um, lots of the consequences of, of Brexit, maybe one of them, for example, being that Boris Johnson ends up the Prime Minister due to the dynamics of how the debate took place in, in England. Um, lots of reasons why it would be politically weakened um, in terms of the union. On the other hand, I think that it does pose certain questions or certain barriers that we might uh, think about, and we'll talk about these, but one of them that we're focusing on just now around the question of votes and referendums is, as I previously said, small margins create very divisive situations, um, and that the SNP um, and the Greens were pretty active in their support for, for a people's vote. Now, here is not a debate about whether or not you think the people's vote was a good or a bad thing, um, or whether or not uh, you support leaving the EU. You know, you and I have maybe got different views on that. Here I'm just mm -hmm. talking purely about referendum mechanics. So if you support something like a people's vote um, in the, the aftermath of Brexit, I think it opens you up to the, the idea of a confirmatory vote on... Uh, on independence. Um, if you argue for it in one situation, why is it not applicable in another? And uh, should uh, there be any negotiations over a referendum, I'm pretty sure this will be part of it. Just again, uh, thinking about Nicola Sturgeon's, and by the way, I have to say at this point, um, when I'm talking about Nicola Sturgeon, I actually think that the issues that she's confronting uh, would be confronted by, by almost anyone. Uh, who was leader of the SNP. So this isn't a personal thing about Nicola. But it's just interesting to look at the, the issue. She says, um, the problem with Brexit was that nobody was straight in advance of the referendum and what it meant. There was no detail. It wasn't the kind of informed decision that the 2014 independence referendum was. Now, that was her response to someone asking, well, why not a confirmatory vote on independence? And I just think it doesn't really stand up too well. I mean... Someone, one person's detailed plan is another person's uh, recipe for confusion. This is politics, mm. after all. And the idea that after a close referendum vote, let's say yes wins by, or whatever the question is, that pro-independence majority by one or two percent, uh, I don't see why the British institutions wouldn't make it extremely difficult uh, to um, come away with any kind of deal which, which people would be happy with. And I also think there would be an almost immediate mobilisation of those who oppose independence calling for, for things like a people's vote. And given the SNP and the Greens have already agreed that this is a, a an acceptable democratic mechanism to address a referendum outcome, then I think we're on very shaky ground on that. Yeah, it even opened up the question of what people's vote might mean. For example, I can, I can imagine a scenario where we have a referendum for independence. We decide that we're going to go for independence. Negotiations happen and we're not happy with them as a nation. You know, the negotiations look as if they've gone bad and perhaps a people's vote is a result of that. 
Now, what then is the result of a rejection of those terms of negotiations? Does it say to the governments, go back and renegotiate? Or does it say to the governments, let's cancel independence? We don't have that answer yet to what that frame would be. We don't. Um, and that's just another hostage to fortune, if you want to put it like that. Um, there's a lot of detail to be worked out. When you look at the question of Indiref, in uh, the newspapers in Scotland or when politicians speak about it, really you only hear independence referendum, yes, no, uh, question, agreement with, with Westminster uh, on holding it, right? The areas of complexity are far wider, though, than that and far more numerous uh, than that. It just doesn't get much hearing in the, in the national press uh, for whatever reason. Now, being the third anniversary here, I really need to take us right back to the very first issue of the, the, the podcast and mention once again the Sustainable Growth Commission. This was the, the, the project that kind of kick-started our, our desire to, to start doing this, to start podcasting. Um, but it also pulls in that, that idea you, you mentioned earlier about that lack of preparation for independence. We've heard talk about a new independence white paper for several years now. The the last attempt was cancelled, um, supposedly due to COVID. Um, there's been mention of a new uh, white paper coming as part of a, a joint paper between the SNP and the Greens. But we also still have that spectre of the Growth Commission ha- hanging over things. Um, I won't go into the, the, the arguments against that paper specifically again, um, as we have on several episodes of the, the, the show. But does its legacy sort of permeate through more recent documents, like the new strategy for economic transition? Does it threaten to permeate into the new Indy white paper? So, yeah, let's not go into the detail of the Growth Commission, because we've done that uh, very often. And I think our analysis of it has been absolutely uh, bang on. Uh, to be honest. And I think the pandemic, um, as I say in the the newsletter, I think the pandemic has rendered the Growth Commission almost obsolete in terms of the things that you would need to do if you were setting up an independent state. But an unpopular plan, uh, one which even on its own terms is pretty contradictory, you know, arguing for sterilisation on the one hand, EU membership on the other. These are clumsy, clunky, not really workable. Um, it wasn't particularly popular in the independence movement, so the idea you could go out and sell it wasn't there. We don't really know what its status is just now, but we do know that even just a few weeks ago, Ian Blackford was on a, a podcast where he talked about um, sterilisation being the favoured option for currency, so clearly that's still uh, in play. The National Strategy for Economic Transformation, which I'm sure, Craig, you will have done Uh, more research than I on at this point. I'm going to be doing some work in that over the next few days. But that is a document where I think you can see quite clearly, I mean, I've only taken a scan of it, but, you know, what's the basis of a strong economy, the spirit of entrepreneurialism? I mean, it it seems low on detail, uh, high on rhetoric, but even the rhetoric isn't particularly progressive, uh, which is something you usually find, which is, you know, progressive progressive rhetoric, but quite a neoliberal uh, economic approach. Um, uh, not to mention we had the Economic Recovery Group, um, which, which seems to have disappeared. And as of now, we don't have a comprehensive plan for independence. Now, we hear that's in the works. Lorna Slater says that they are just now beginning to dust down papers from 2014. Well, I mean, that seems to be uh, pretty optimistic that you're going to get all your plan together 
and in time uh, for a referendum uh, next year. But the lack of plan has been a, a really problematic issue for the independence movement. I actually think it does indicate the level of seriousness with which the SNP are taking the, the national question. Mm. And if we think about you know the future campaign um, for, a, for, for an independence referendum, whether it's next year or whether it's later, if that is... If the core of that is around a white paper that is not universally adopted by the, the independence movement, um, which in many ways the 2014 white paper wasn't, what does that what, what will that do to the campaign? Because in 2014, a lot of us who didn't agree with that white paper then did kind of still knuckle down and say, right, well, that's that's our view. It's on the table, but we're pushing for independence regardless, and we'll 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 sort it out later. Um Will there, will there be enough trust to do that again? Well, again, the world's changed, and this is the thing. Uh, we've already talked about Brexit. Uh, there is a high degree of instability and volatility in the political system and the economic system. Uh, you look at things like um, uh, the rise in energy bills, the, the big political confrontations, uh, the question of international conflict. You know, all of these big um, uh, issues uh, require real vision and detail in terms of selling uh, independence. Uh, so I think that the onus now on having that kind of plan is far greater uh, now than it was in, in 2014. Uh, 2014 is an interesting period because it's just before, it's after austerity packages and the financial crisis of 2008, but it's also before Trump and Brexit and all of the big confrontations uh, that, that we've seen uh, politically, uh, and not to mention, of course, the pandemic. So we need to have something much more rigorous uh, this time round. It absolutely has to be uh, in place. Now, of course, look, I'm uh, a socialist. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that the Scottish government is going to produce a socialist document for, for independence. However, I do think that it should be producing a sovereigntist uh, position. I do think that it should be producing uh, an idea of how the institutions will be set up, independent banks, uh, other forms of, of institutions that, that, that we require. Uh, that, I think, is, is the benchmark. Around that, you can argue a variety of political positions, of course, on, and, and in terms of how you want to run those institutions and in whose interests. But I think that kind of plan is, is evasive uh, from, from, from the independence movement. It doesn't exist at the present moment. We hear there are uh, a small number of civil servants working on the case, but, but let me tell you, uh, Craig, you know, one of, the, one of the bits of work I'm looking at just now is something like the Local Democracy Bill. Now, the Local Democracy Bill uh, has scheduled to go through in this parliament. It's a huge amount of work. It may or may not go through this parliament. We don't know. Depends on the political will as much as anything else. But that's looking at reforming local democracy in Scotland. We are looking at setting up an entirely new state uh, separate from, from the UK institutions. And uh, I just don't think we're there in terms of any kind of plan around that. I can certainly say for myself that I'd be, I'd be a lot happier if this white paper was being, uh, at least had an avenue for, for input from other groups, not just the, the SNP and, and, and the Greens, therefore not just a Scottish government project, but if they could have some sort of forum where we could bring in other pro-independence parties who'd just happen to not be in Parliament at the moment. Other independence groups, so 
the likes of Commonweal, the likes of Now Scotland, the SIC, and other pro indie groups who have who have been talking for you know since since the the last referendum and before and find some way of of having some input into that. So if anyone's involved in that project and would like to to, to create that forum, uh, you know, give us all a shout. You know where we all are. Another thing that you do bring up in your blog is is the idea that. When the Scottish government's been talking about um, uh, the, the the independence referendum, it often couched it in terms of various caveats. We wouldn't be campaigning until we saw the impact of Brexit, till we knew what the shape of Brexit would be. Now it's um, till the impact of COVID is resolved, perhaps with not not even just the the acute impact of the health effects of the pandemic, but perhaps the economic impacts beyond. Can you talk about the the the, the kind of Attitude from the Scottish government that's created those caveats, and why have they why have they done this? Is this a is this an escape plan for them? I think it partly is. I mean, you have to remember that you can look at any number of issues. I mean, let's move away from independence just for a moment. I mean, you can look at lots of areas of domestic policy where there is some headline around it, but then there is a long period of consultation. There is a there is an even longer period before we get anywhere near implementation okay and that's on relatively minor domestic reforms within devolution okay we are talking now about again setting up an independent country and so if you actually look at the the various caveats which they've added i mean fog of brexit i mean arguably that's still going on just now i mean it's i think that in a sense is almost indefinite there's always going to be that kind of evolving uh, relationship between the uk and and the eu um, and we don't quite know where it's going to, to go. Um, COVID permitting, again, I think that's understandable. You know, don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, I think that was absolutely understandable to focus on, yep. on the pandemic. Um, at the same time, though, it also has a high degree of elasticity within that statement. Um, and especially if it involves um, economic issues as well, issues of economic recovery. So, I mean, interestingly, the national strategy for economic transformation is a 10-year plan. It's not based on having the powers of independence, as far as I can make out. So, you know, that tells us a lot there. I have to say, Craig, that I think there is now a far bigger um, issue uh, when it comes to independence, which is the, the subject of the coming newsletter, which is Ukraine. And which is the the coherence of the national and international security order, and the idea that at a moment like this, where the EU is not only coming together politically very strongly, but which is really becoming a military power in its, in its own right, the EU, mm. at a time where uh, NATO, uh, there's a huge emphasis on the unity of NATO and the transatlantic partnership between America and the UK and the EU. I think at a time like that, uh, given the, the the absolute caution of, of the SNP, but also given the ideological position of the SNP, to go for a, any kind of attempt to, to break up the British state, even if even if it's uh, done in the most menial terms and, uh, and that sort of thing, if anything approaching, uh, breaking up the British state or dismantling the UK at this time. I just think it's it's off the agenda for the SNP um, at this point, and that is uh, something we really have to think about. Hmm. And that opposition, um, it might come in the form of sort of a, a, a response to a, a crisis, as you say, but we also know that the 
groups like the Conservatives are simply a priori against in, in independence and against an indie ref. We mentioned Alistair Jack, uh, who had accepted um, that 60% electoral polling threshold, but at the same time, he's also said publicly that he doesn't believe in another independence ref. A referendum should happen until a generation has passed, and he defines that as until everyone who has voted in 2014 is dead. Yeah. So even if we did meet all of the conditions that they lay out, they I find it hard to believe that the Conservatives, without pressure, would accept them, you know, even if we meet all their conditions. So how can we as an independence movement push through that or push past that? Well, let's imagine there was a very coherent plan for independence and a highly, highly motivated SNP leadership around independence that was willing to take political risks and to challenge the British state in order to bring about a referendum. Well, what would the barriers be? First of all, the SNP has already committed. I mean, it's worth saying this. The SNP has committed to really the only way to achieve independence being through an agreed referendum. Uh, now, there's lots of debate about that in certain circles, but again, uh, you can understand why they take that position, right? Problem is, in taking that position, the Tories have the ability simply to say no. They can block a referendum. Not only can they block, block a referendum, they can go to the Supreme Court to even challenge a, ref, a, a referendum conducted purely by, by the Scottish government without, without Westminster's consent. So they have a number of options. Now, is it in the interest of the Tory party to allow a referendum? I don't think in Scottish terms it particularly is. Uh, their base in Scotland electorally is uh, focused and crystallised around uh, the Union. Um, are they uh, in a position of strength uh, to say no to one? Well, politically, you could have said that Boris Johnson was was very much a weakened uh, figure. Of course, he can be replaced. We don't know what's going to happen with that. But I think that they now have, um, even more than they did have before, the ability to say simply um, that the international crisis, which is gripping the world system, is too grave to even entertain a, a referendum at this at this point. So regardless of these sort of extenuating circumstances, though, the fact the fact of the matter is that Westminster actually does have the power. Now, I actually said in the, the newsletter, this came out just before uh, Putin's um, uh, outrageous and illegal invasion of, of Ukraine, is that Nicola Sturgeon did an interview with Vogue magazine in which she said that time was on her side over the question of independence. And I put in this newsletter, well, maybe that's true, but also events like pandemics or wars or economic crises don't necessarily augur against the UK institutions and towards independence. And I think we might be seeing, particularly on the question of wars, that being a real factor as, as we move forward. But yeah, in sum, there, there is no particular reason why the Tories would say no. And I think people would say, well, they'd be going against democracy. I mean, look, this is not a, a government which is particularly known for embracing uh, democratic ideals. So I, I don't think that'd be a particular problem, uh, to be honest. So, um, I mean, I suppose very lastly, Craig, is, is worth to get this in as well. The other advantage they have in saying, though, is that it may also create further divisions in the SNP over strategy. It may make the SNP appear impotent. It may demoralise the movement for independence. There's lots of things that you could point to 
that would give them the option uh, coming down on the side of just saying, well, no. And I have to say, from Colin Rule's point of view, we have um, written a policy paper on how an independence movement could mount an escalating pressure campaign to make it difficult to say no. Um, and I'll, I'll leave a link to that paper in the description of the podcast. So as we come to the end, very finally, Jonathan, what's next for you? What are you getting up to in the near future, both in indie politics and, and, and elsewhere? Well, we're doing, uh, I'm doing a lot with this um, uh, newsletter at the moment because I think there's a number of arguments that need to be um, produced and, and discussed. You know, people might disagree with things that have been said, but, but I think they should be discussed. I am pessimistic about the direction of, of the independence uh, cause. I think it's very, very difficult to see any medium-term breakthrough around it. And again, sometimes when you say that, people can get a bit annoyed, but I do think now we're in a moment where we have to at least present our views honestly um, about, about the situation. And on a more positive note, that might give us some coordinates as to how to actually move forward uh, uh, f- move forward with it. I mean, one of the things I just touched on briefly is that even if the Tories were to say yes to, to a referendum, that would only be the start of a kind of protracted period of, of negotiations. But the nature of that referendum, the question, and so on and so forth. So for me, there's a big onus on focusing on some 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 questions that exist around things like the the energy bills crisis and been doing some work with the people's assembly which which people should have a look at which kind of mobilizing body a kind of social movement around questions like the standards of living uh, crisis and the cost of the cost of living crisis i think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of the peace movement uh, i think that's probably uh, taking on a, a particularly important role. And again, there's all kinds of debates totally. about that. But I think there's a real need to be talking about things like uh, disarmament, uh, nuclear disarmament, uh, for example, um, and to be talking about um, how we democratise security and democratise energy resources so that we can avoid these kinds of international conflicts uh, and, and wars, which which just end up killing so many, so many innocent people. I mean, this century has already been dominated by by wars you know and uh, lots of these wars have been outside of Europe but they're no less no less damaging um and uh, and people need to, to to really think so I think the peace movement the anti-war movement and just a lot of writing as well uh, trying to write more uh, and and just just to end uh, with a comment just saying keeping in touch with with what Commonweal is doing mm. um, and and wanting to to support the work that Commonweal does. The the work on, on care has been incredible. I mean, I looked at that report and, and the campaign around it. The amount of work and expertise that's gone into that is absolutely huge. And Commonweal continues uh, just to, to, to fight against all the odds, given how little uh, finance it's got in comparison to these big establishment uh, think tanks to produce that level of of quality uh, uh, and and of reports is is brilliant so I, I follow that with interest believe me we're planning to do uh, the same thing with the the independence campaign with a, a prospectus for what a a common real independent scotland might look like uh, we'll, we'll see that out later in the year well Jonathan, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for coming on on the other side of the interview desk, <laughs> metaphorically, as we're all uh, still still working virtually. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. I will put a link to your, your blog and your newsletter in the description of the podcast. And 
as I mentioned at the start of the program, if any of you out there have a project that you want to come on and talk talk uh, about on the podcast, I am particularly interested in community projects and local um, solutions to local problems that that um, touch on some of the themes and the the ideals that Commonweal espouses. If you're if you are invo- involved in any of those projects, get in touch and I'll feature you on the show. I really want to talk to communities about what's going on in the, the local nooks and crannies in Scotland. And just finally, uh, I'd just like to say that, uh, as I always do, that Commonweal as an organisation is entirely funded by our, our generous donors who give us an average of £10 a month. We don't get government money. We don't have corporate sponsors. We don't even have adverts on, on our website. So we are we, our policies, and this podcast are entirely supported by by you. So if any of you can help us out and can donate to the show and support us that way, we are extremely grateful. Thank you once again, Jonathan. And I'll see everyone else next week. <laughs>